On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about government grants. The city of Hamilton is putting in for up to 41 projects. There's about a billion dollars that's floating around that's available to people, to cities, from the provincial and federal governments. Hamilton is looking to get a chunk of that for up to 41 projects. But is this a good way of doing things? Or is this just simply the provincial and federal governments rewarding those ridings that won power for them? Well, we'll talk about that one with Councillor Chad Collins. Also, we will be talking about movie theaters. Are they dead? There are some who are saying with the way all these streaming services are now dumping millions and millions and millions into shows that go immediately to your TV set or movies that go immediately to your TV set, that the movie theater is a dying thing. Is it? Well, we'll discuss that too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may not know this, but right now there is something in the neighborhood of a billion dollars floating around out there available to Ontario municipalities through grants from the provincial and federal governments. These are dollars to help primarily with infrastructure projects. And so how does a city then get its hands on some of this billion dollars? Well, it's pretty simple. It asks for it. That's all you got to do. doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it certainly is a tempting target for a lot of cities because for projects that are chosen, the federal government pays 40%. The province pays 33.33%. That leaves the city to pay just 26.67%. 27 cents on the dollar is what you have to pay for these projects then. So the question is, does Hamilton have any requests that it's put out there? Well, thank you for asking. Yes, in fact, they do. 41 of them they have, the city has. 41 requests for projects, cost of $318 million if they were all to be accepted. Uh, while that may sound like a great deal, there may be a bit of a catch behind this. I want to bring in Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins to join us. Chad, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, 41 projects that we have put out there, or at least we're interested in, are these, from what you've seen of these, are these wants or are these needs right now for us? I believe every single one of those 41 projects are currently uh, in the city's 10-year capital budget book. And so they would be renovations to existing facilities. In some cases, they may be additions to facilities that uh, are too small for the growing neighbourhood that's around them. And so they would be at this point in, in time they'd be they'd be needs and um, it, it is it's essentially helping us with our our deficit that we have as it relates to our capital. So we have many rec centers and other buildings across the city that are you know in some cases thirty or forty years old. Many of the major components have um, reached the end of their useful lifespan, and so we have a, a long list of repairs and renovations to make. And um, and the, the application that we would have submitted. Uh, through this infrastructure program is essentially one where we're we're looking for the subsidies that you've referenced. And this would then fall into, we, we hear often about the city's 3.2 or 3.1 or $3.3 billion infrastructure deficit. That's where this would fall into then. That's right. And it's not uncommon for us to make application to either the federal government or the provincial governments to try to offset our own capital uh, needs that we have. And this is one of those instances. So these come out maybe every three or four years. Sometimes they're associated with housing. Other times it's roads and bridges. In this case, it's it's recreation. And um, yeah, and so we've made our submission and we hope for the best through this process. And it's always a, a waiting game and a guessing game to determine which one of those projects are going to fall through the bottom of the bingo hopper there. Oh, yeah. Well, and at and- some point in time, there's an announcement and we 
get a, a list that's provided to us and say, geez, we're, we're just happy to get something from them. Well, and it sounds, I mean, it sounds wonderful. If you can get a chunk of or some percentage of a billion dollars, that I suppose on its face is a terrific thing. Yet at the same time, you have called this pork barrel politics. Why? Well, it's a, it becomes a system, unfortunately, and this is I, it's nothing new. Um, it essentially becomes a system where the government gets to choose where those uh, resources are then allocated. And, it, and so we have a system certainly where there's the push and pull of politics as we debate our own budgets here. Everyone's looking to advocate on behalf of their constituents. And, and we have reports in front of us that tell us the age of facilities. We, we have reports that tell us health and, sa- health and safety issues attached to buildings and or other infrastructure. And so we make an informed decision. And um, I think what we've noticed over the last number of years, as these programs come through the province and the federal government, there really is no rhyme or reason other than in some instances it's based on geography. And so because the government gets to determine where these projects are funded and how they're funded, uh, they have the final say in terms of where the resources will flow through, uh, flow to. And it becomes essentially an opportunity for the local members who are part of the government to make that determination. And, uh, you know, for many of the projects, we find them flowing through and into the uh, government member who's making that decision. So the ridings that are, are represented by a government member for the governing party essentially, you know, to the victors go the spoil, essentially, Scott. And we talked about this. I mean, Scott Duvall said this during a Cable Mm -hmm. 14 debate, and we had him on here and talked about it, and he he Mm -hmm. was very blunt. If you are in government, you get money, and if you're not, it's a lot harder. Yeah, and I I mean, I'm glad he was very open and honest about it, because it it really has become a problem for a city like Hamilton. And I say this with the greatest respect to everyone who's representing us with all the political parties that we have um, in the city. You know, we, we oftentimes here locally over the last decade have, have elected opposition members. And when you do that, you have less of an opportunity under the system that you and I were just talking about to enjoy some of the resources that flow when governments hand out, um, re- uh, whether it's money or make policy changes that might benefit a, a, a municipality. And so we're, we're a little bit behind the eight ball. We have historically at the provincial and federal level have uh, elected a lot of um, opposition members. And, and through that process, some could argue, when you start comparing the per capita funding that a city like Toronto might get, which is really uh, riding rich at both levels, so there's lots of seats in Toronto, and traditionally, the Toronto is going with the government. So we just witnessed that with the, the federal election that happened a week ago. They elected a lot of Liberal members, and I'm certain that when this program is announced, they will by far be well over the per capita funding number if you were to figure that out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's exceptionally difficult to do a serious talk show <laughs> with Rocky Horror Picture Show bringing us in. Uh, we are trying, though, because we're talking about about a billion dollars in grant money that's floating around out there that Hamilton is trying to get its hands on for 41 different projects. They won't get all of it. They won't maybe get one. They may get two. Who knows? But they put out the wide net and hope that they may get it. The difficulty, as my guest Chad Collins, Ward 5 counselor who rejoins us now, was just saying is it's the writings, as Scott Duvall said, it's the writings that have members of government that tend to get the money and so, Chad, with that being said, and I think everyone is applauding politicians who are being honest about this, mm-hmm. 
Um, how optimistic are you that we end up with much, if any, money from this billion dollars? Well, I think we'll probably get something. Uh, we, I, I think, as Mr. Dresser wrote in his article, you know, we'll, we'll probably get one, maybe two, as you just referenced. We, you know, what we're looking for is consistency and predictability. It's pretty hard to build our budgets, you know, not knowing what's coming in the form of assistance from the province or the federal government. And, and I think what we've seen recently with how they distribute their monies outside of this process in particular, Scott, is essentially one where they announce these policy and program commitments and changes at the beginning of their term, and all of the checks flow at the end of the mandate. And, you know, some of those commitments even have asterisks on the bottom of them. If we're elected for a second term of office, you'll get these resources, um, you know, after our election. And, and invariably, that's, that's increasing what's happening at both the provincial level and the federal level. And so from a predictability standpoint, cities are left unsure in terms of when resources will flow through to them. And from a consistency perspective, there's nothing to suggest that it's on a per capita basis. And so this pork barrel politics system that's existed for several decades just seems to be getting worse as time goes on. You were very polite a few moments ago, and I might even say very politically astute, which uh, probably helps if you're a politician. Um, But a few minutes ago when you said, you know, that we have tended in this city very often to vote for opposition parties over the last few decades. Mm -hmm. Very honestly, is that not hurting us? I mean, it really is hurting us, isn't it? Well, when, we, when everyone agrees that this is the system that we work in, as it relates to resources flow to government ridings through government members, if you know, if under that system you're electing people who aren't part of the government, I think it's bound to hurt a municipality or, or an electoral region or a geographic area. In some cases, that in, that includes entire provinces. And so I, you know, I I think we're, we've been fortunate to have some representation. But we clearly haven't had as much as some other regions in Ontario, and we can look down the highway at Toronto as a as a prime example. And, and maybe Toronto is an unfair example. Most governments are very Toronto centric when it comes to funding or policy changes. Um, but even if you compare us to some other regions um, around the province, I, I think you could start to make the argument that Hamilton has become, in part have not community as a result of not electing government members. Well, and, and perhaps a bigger challenge in that is if you look at some of these, a government may look and say, oh, well, that riding, it was close. We think we could tip the balance and maybe win that. We don't have it now, but we could put some money in there and they'll turn around and vote for us. I don't think any government is going to look at any of the ridings in this city and look at them as being very easy to move to the conservative side or some of the NDP ridings to go to liberal. We're pretty entrenched with who we vote for in these ridings. We really are. And if you look, especially at the next, you know, who knows how long the minority government's going to last. But if you look at the next provincial one, I don't see many of the ridings in play for a, a re-election for the Ford government, right? So, I, I you know. So why uh, would you and, want to buy the riding if you know you can't win it? Well, and that's, that's, what I'm, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's exactly it. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's the way the system has worked traditionally. And I haven't seen any leader at the federal or provincial level who has suggested that they're going to change the way they do business in that regard. And so unfortunately, as it relates to provincial funding, we'll continue to see heavy investments in other parts of Ontario where their members are going to Queen's Park and advocating for their constituents, and I can't blame them for that. Um, And here in Hamilton, where we have one member, I think the representation that we have will be indicative of the funding that we get here, which will be far less than some other areas. 
there's no way to mandate this. There's no way you could legislate every riding gets a relatively equal amount of money, right? I mean, that that's never going to happen in politics. It just doesn't work that way. Well, they do have, in a loose way, the gas tax revenues flow through to us. Um, it's based on transit ridership in part, population. And so there is a formula there that has helped us a little bit. And we're not as strong on the transit file as someone like Toronto or, or Ottawa. Uh, there's heavily subsidized uh, transit in Ottawa compared to other parts of Ontario because they are the, the capital. And so, uh, you know, I, I can say, I can point to certain areas and say that there there is a little bit of a formula in, in, in some of the ways that they distribute their resources, certainly as it relates to people who are eligible for, let's say, um, Ontario Works. It's consistent across the board. So your eligibility here in Hamilton is the same as it would be in Ottawa. But as it relates to those programs where it's it's capital or there's investments into an airport or a port, um, those those are the ones that really are fairly loose. And the government has the greatest discretion to determine where those investments are made or not. Well, fingers crossed. Let's hope we can get some of this money. Uh, Chad Collins, Councillor for Ward 5, thank you so much for the time. Appreciate it today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, yeah, again, let's hope. I mean, a billion dollars would be helpful. We've been talking about the LRT and people arguing, would a billion dollars be useful with some other things? Well, we're not getting the full billion, but boy, this city could use some investment infrastructure-wise to fix up and maintain some of the public buildings and public roads and public other stuff that needs to be done. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, I don't know if you've heard about the movie that's just out now, brand new, called The Irishman. It's a Martin Scorsese movie. He directed it. It's about it's the story of Jimmy Hoffa through the years. Robert De Niro's in it. Al Pacino is in it. Joe Pesci is in it. A bunch of others. And it is already being called a masterpiece in some corners. Uh, it is being talked about in favorable terms for Academy Awards. So that being said, with this movie just being fresh, you know it's going to make bank at the box office. You know it's going to clean up, right? Well, no, it's not. And I'll tell you why. It's not because the movie's not great. As we've heard, this movie is getting rave reviews. This movie cost $140 million to make. It's not a cheap movie. That's not why it's not going to make money. The issue is who made it. Netflix made this movie. Netflix has produced it. So it's only being shown in a handful of theaters all across North America, just so the movie can now be qualifying for the Academy Award under the new rules. What's happening is this movie is going to be going almost directly to your TV by November 27. This is going to be on Netflix. And this is now leading some people to question with so many streaming services starting up and such a battle going on. Is there a future for the movie theater? Scott Henderson, for years he taught communication, popular culture, and film at Brock University. Today he's the head of Durham campus of Trent University, although still very involved in the whole pop culture and film world. Uh, Scott, thanks for doing this today. Oh, pleasure, Scott. Uh, I, when I heard that this movie was $140 million to make, you would have thought that they would have to put it in theaters just to try and make some of that money back. That's a lot of money. Can, can Netflix possibly really... Forget turn a profit. Can they even come close to breaking even just by putting that on your TV and charging you your monthly fee? I doubt it. I think this is all about competition. They've got Apple Plus coming. They've got Disney Plus coming. They've got all sorts of new streaming services showing up in lots of markets. You know, they need to have some big budget 
big name items on there. So people say, I'm going to hang on to that subscription. And I think that's what this is all about. It's not maybe recouping these costs. I mean, I'm sure they make that much and more in subscriptions, but it's about retaining viewers. That, you know, and, and the funny thing is you mentioned about Disney and you mentioned about Apple and I mean, there's Hulu and there's all the, there's a whole bunch we can't even get in Canada, but certainly in the States that they get those. And I, do people, I've, I've heard of people canceling other ones, canceling Crave or can but no one ever cancels Netflix. It seems, are, are they totally Teflon or do you think there are people who may look at this and go, you know, there's so many options now, maybe I just get rid of Netflix. I think the last little while, the market's been getting kind of twitchy about Netflix because, you know, the numbers are flatlining. The projections aren't quite going up in that steady increase. I mean, obviously, you're going to max out. If everyone gets Netflix, nobody else is going to get Netflix, but they're not getting the growth that they projected. So I think there's a nervousness starting. And if people start going to these other services, you know, they may cancel. They may cancel for a few months and then come back, but they want that steady income. I, I, you just touched on something because I'm that guy. I, I've had Netflix consistently, but I have had other services where I'll get them for a month or two, watch all the things I want to watch in the span of those two months, and then cancel it for the rest of the year. And they probably hate me for being that kind of customer. But you can do that with a lot of these services because there's not the volume of stuff on them. Right, which you couldn't do before with cable, right? Because you no. know things would be bundled together or you get a special deal, but you had to keep everything for a year. They. I'm wondering when these services are going to start going towards that model. Of saying of saying what? That you have to keep it for a full year or you can't get back in? Or or, or different pricing. I mean, some of the sports ones, and I, I'm a streamer. I, I sign up for my sport ones. You get a 12-month package. You get a much better deal than if you buy mm. month by month. This is hardly, though, so like I say, $140 million is an, is an extraordinary amount for a movie that's basically going to be streamed because they're not getting any box office revenues from this. And yet this is hardly the only thing Netflix is spending. They, you look at what comes up month after month and who's producing it, and they're on a spending spree, Netflix is. Is that in any way sustainable? I don't see how it can be. I really think this is about getting out there, being that kind of market leader, fending off you know, all of this competition that's really, really ramping up right now. So, you know, they signed the guy who was the showrunner for, for Glee and um, a, lot, a lot of other shows, American Horror Story, right? Ryan Murphy was signed to them. And, you know, that that was a big deal for them. And, you know, you're, you're starting to see other services. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's written the new James Bond and has the, that show Fleabag, Amazon has signed her to an exclusive deal. So now you're starting to see something that looks like the Hollywood studios back in the big studio era, right? And Fox would say, this is our star, and they're locked down under contract for the next 10 years, and here's their persona, and you know that's who they would have in their stable. And I had actually forgotten about Amazon Prime. That's right, that one's out there too. The other part about this, though, Scott, that makes me wonder, maybe I'm thinking too deeply into this, but I started to wonder if, with all these streaming companies and with Netflix, if we're all part of a big social engineering experiment that they are playing a long game here by putting what they hope will be great stuff on our TV so that we get used to the idea that the top flight first run entertainment is on your couch and on your TV first. So we get used to not going to the theaters, but we get used to sitting at home and watching this. I think that's part of it. I mean, there's, there's a big divide opening up. I think we've talked about this in the past. I think, Theaters are increasingly, it's the superhero films. Like, I've never seen a genre sustain 
as long as the kind of superhero one, but that's because it takes full advantage of, you know, seats that move and huge Dolby sound and all sorts of other special effects and, you know, lots of explosions, lots of action. And, and that's becoming the kind of theater experience as opposed to watching, you know, films that are telling, you know, deep in depth stories and are a little more intimate that will work on TV and work via streaming. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Scott Henderson, longtime pop culture professor about movie theaters. Is there a future for movie theaters? And this whole thing has been created by a discussion around this new movie called The Irishman, Martin Scorsese movie, that is going to be in a few theaters, a handful, just so they can qualify for an Academy Award. But it's going on Netflix right away, and people are now saying, why bother with theaters anymore? And Scott, I mean, for me, and maybe it's just my age now, and you talked about superhero movies, which are really not my area of, you know, thing, but not not going to the theater, watching at home, it's cheaper, it's easier, uh, it's more comfortable. I'm sure there's other things you can put in there. I mean, there's lots of reasons not to go now. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a big shift. I mean, this is not the first time, you know, Hollywood and the theaters have felt pressure, right? You go back to the 50s and, you know, the rise of television in the first place. And therefore, you know, the film companies came out with 3D. They came out with, you know, seats that would jolt you at the right moment. And as we're on Halloween, you know, there were lots of 3D horror films and these kinds of things to entice audiences into stuff they couldn't get on TV. And then they also went big, right? That, you know, the screens got bigger. Cinerama kind of came in and, you know, the widescreen, the kind of Ben-Hurs of, of the world were... Uh, were all the rage and then you know they found their space and they kept going and then we had the kind of cineplex era when you know the 32 i think it was screens over mm. the eden center in the 70s <laughs> yeah, that's blew right. us all away oh, so much choice that we were gonna have we went to the theater so there's, there's been cycles and they, they come and go and you know this one seems to be sticking i mean i do think there's a real shift to the streaming in terms of great screenwriting and you know the kinds of writers and actors who will now be on tv if we want to call it that anymore hey, I, I love that you brought up cineplex i used to go to those theaters at the eaton center when i was going to ryerson and i think our tv at home now is bigger than many of the screens that were in that theater oh i'm, I'm sure they are <laughs> i remember that and, but it was so cool to have that choice yeah you couldn't even decide but here so so there's this theater here in hamilton that when I do go, I love going Jackson Square, and the reason is they're not as big as some of them, but they are. You can reserve your seats ahead of time, so you know where you're going to sit. And they have these leather reclining seats. And the longer I thought about why I love this, I thought, well, wait a second, that's just replicating home. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just making it so I can be more like home. Yeah, I mean, people still like a, a night out, but the notion that you can reserve that you know some of them you can get a glass of wine. Well, you're watching and, you know, there's been a number of theaters very successful showing what we might kind of call retro cinema, right? Whether, whether it's, you know, recently first run stuff or even older stuff, because people just want to get out and see it in a different environment. So, you know, there, there is a, a scope for other forms of theatrical distribution. Do you think we lose anything if the theater were to essentially fade as far as, you know, like one of the things people always talked about when Jaws came out, very first summer blockbuster, and the, the, the buzz in the theater and the screams and everything else of watching it communally. Do, do, is that still relevant, that, that feeling of watching it with other people? I think it still has, you know 
importance. I mean, I used to, when I'd show films in class, I would insist students stay and say, you know, I know you could watch this on your phone. I know you may have even seen some of these films before, but getting that audience reaction, knowing that if I find this funny, does everybody else find this funny? Or I'm jumping out of my seat as everybody else. So there is something in that kind of crowd reaction. This is going to, though, I would think, if we're talking about this with The Irishman and with Netflix, this has got to be something we're going to be talking about more now because you mentioned Disney is coming out with their new streaming service. I think, is it November that theirs starts? I think something like that. And Apple Plus, you mentioned, is coming out. And if Netflix is doing this to try and carve out its area, I don't think we can expect that Disney is going to say, yeah, we're never going to do anything new. We're just going to show the Lion King from 1994 forever. They're going to, every one of these is going to have to start doing things that are going to keep you away from the theater. Exactly. I mean, Disney's already pulling back a lot of the films that they have, you know, in their back catalog, including some of the stuff they bought out in recent years that wasn't even Disney. And that's, that's annoying a lot of people, you know, things like the Rocky Horror Show, which you now can't, get to watch in the theater because they own the rights and they're hanging on to it. And certainly all, you know, the whole Marvel universe, which is you know yes. now under the Disney umbrella. So they'll, they'll keep, I think, you know, building on that, building their own kind of franchises within there. So there will be a significant change. I think Netflix grabbing someone like Scorsese was important, right? They had a real go last year and I, I feel bad because I was so wrong about Roma. I was certain it would win best picture. Right? and said somehow the Green Book mm. snuck through, but it sort of shows, I think, still some of that lingering Hollywood attitude about streaming services. So how, we only have a minute or so left here, how do theaters, and, and you mentioned it, I mean, this has been going on for generations now, whether it was TV or whatever else, but in, in 2019, 2020, how do theaters fight back and remain relevant? I think we're starting to see them try some of these new tricks. I mean, you, you'll always get people for the big, blockbuster joker film you know that was out recently or some of the stuff from the marvel universe that that's always going to attract but it's adding things like the comfortable seats the reservations make it a special night out right take advantage of that screen space i mean there is stuff that's still made for the big screen and people want to see it there that's really kind of beautiful to watch at that scope and if they kind of market it that way i think they can sustain themselves it's a fascinating topic. I mean, they've always been able to figure it out before, and I'm sure they may again, but uh, boy, there seems to be so much more competition now. Scott Henderson, long-time communications and pop culture professor. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, pleasure, Scott. Have a good night. Uh, I do want to see The Irishman, though. I mean, it does sound really good, and the technology behind it, what they did. You've, you've seen actors get aged before. They make up or whatever else. They make them look older. The technology they have now, the computer stuff, it actually made De Niro and Pesci and um, uh, Pacino younger in this movie. Going back to it, that, that is cool. That is, that's also it's for another discussion for another day, but that is a little frightening. I mean, we are really getting to the point when we have enough computers and CGI and all the rest that we don't even need actors anymore. Just take the actors we've had and fiddle around with them on computer and hey, there you go, brand new. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is Halloween, and you know, I realized today, and I'm going to bring Ben in on the conversation right now, I realized today we know everything pretty much about Christmas, what the Christmas traditions are and why we do the things and everything else. We have a pretty fair grasp of the traditions around Easter, around New Year's, 
around St. Patrick's Day. I mean, most of the days, the significant days, the things on the calendar that we celebrate or we mark, we have a pretty good idea of the things that are involved in those particular days. I'm not positive that we know much about Halloween other than the fact that we put on a costume and go ringing doorbell to doorbell or knocking on the door and asking for candy and that there are witches involved somehow. And so I thought, you know what, let's look this thing up. And it's amazing how many things there are about Halloween that we really do not know anything about. Starting with this one, which does not sound all that appealing. The first jack-o'-lanterns, what do you think the first jack-o'-lanterns were made from? I'll give you a hint. They were not pumpkins. Oh, I've heard this one. It, I saw one. It looked almost like a carrot. Uh, turnip? A turnip. Or? Turnips oh. were the first jack-o'-lanterns. Probably because nobody likes turnips. <laughs> and so I don't mind them, but I used to hate them. But yeah, so let's use them as artisanal things rather than to actually eat them. But yes, the first jack-o'-lanterns were actually made of turnips. Halloween is the second, get this, Halloween is the second highest grossing commercial holiday after, yeah, of course, Christmas. But still, we pay more money into Halloween than any other holiday except for Christmas. I don't know how to say this word, so I'm going to take my best shot at it. Samhainophobia, S-A-M-H-A-I-N-O-phobia. Samhainophobia is the fear of Halloween. I guess some people actually have a fear of Halloween. I could be understanding being scared of having someone pop out from behind a door and scare you. I'm not sure I'd be fearful of the whole Halloween. Anyway, that exists. 50% of kids, when they are asked what is their favorite kind of candy, now take note of this because this is important, again, to keep your house from being egged or toilet papered. 50% of kids want chocolate when they go door to door. Chocolate is the number one preferred item, preferred candy. 24% who prefer non, 24% prefer non-chocolate candy, anything but chocolate, and 10% prefer gum, just so you're aware of that. Now, this, this brings us to an interesting point about Halloween. Every year when I was a kid and then when I was taking my own kids around to do trick-or-treating, once you had cleaned the chocolate bars out of the bag and the bags of chips and the little things of licorice and whatever else, you, you go through all the good stuff, s- sweet tarts and everything else. At the bottom of the bag... Among the wrinkled apples and homemade popcorn balls that some people still, for whatever reason, insist on doing, even though no one's going to eat them. Here's a hint. If you are spending a lot of time preparing for the neighborhood kids by making popcorn balls, save your time because 100% of those are going directly into the garbage. I'm sorry. It's not that we don't like you. It's that we really don't want our kids biting into a razor blade. Nonetheless. In the mix at the bottom of the bag left over with the popcorn balls and the wrinkly apples, there are those candies of no real description that come in the little wrapper that is the Halloween wrapper. And someone told me they're molasses candies. You know the ones I'm talking about? They, they are a brownish, grayish kind of hue. They, they don't look like anything really. They, I don't even know what, how you would describe them, but... 
I want to know who buys those candies to give to the kids. The, like, there must be, it must be the person on the street who hates children. Who else would get, those candies are horrible. They don't taste good. They stick to your teeth like crazy. You can't get them out of your teeth. You can never swallow them. You can never remove them from your mouth. Who gives out those gross molasses candies? Never figured that one out. I, I mean, I, it mu- as I say, it must be the person on the street who really hates kids and wants to deter them from coming without having their house egged by having the door shut and the light off. Because there is no other explanation for why anybody would give out those kind of things. That's, that's, like, that's like at Christmas time giving someone a lump of coal. It really is. Or on their birthday, in giving them patty wax for their birthday, but instead of just like patty whacking them using a, hitting them from behind with a car. I mean, it's just, it's gross. Ben, have you ever eaten those nondescript molasses Halloween wrapped candies? You must have had those over the years. When you're, think, when you're really desperate. I think I've probably found them at the bottom, and yeah. I think I've thought that they were bad. Because of the color, I was always kind of turned off from them. And you, they're the last thing that anybody would eat. And it's only when you reach full desperation because all the other candy is gone and it's November the 3rd. Oh, yeah. You're into withdrawal and it's, yeah. What have I got here? Oh, I've got this thing that looks like brown, gray road tar that someone wrapped into a candy form for me. Yeah, it's 50 50. I'll either die or I'll like it. Um, but if you're, but I'm a kid, yeah. it's got sugar. <laughs> I'll eat it. Um, all right. We keep moving along here. Uh, jack-o'-lanterns. See, we didn't know this one either. Jack-o'-lanterns are named after a stingy man in legend named Jack, who, because he tricked the devil several times, was forbidden entrance into both heaven and to hell and was condemned to walk the earth, waving his lantern to lead people away from their own paths. Interesting. Jack-o'-lantern. So he was the guy who was stuck on earth forever, which means if this is true, Jack is still here somewhere. Hi, Jack. He could be following you right now on the street. (laughs) Yeah, that would be him. What do we got here? Um, The first known mention of trick-or-treating occurred in Alberta. In Canada, in North America, 1927, Blackie, Alberta, Canada is the uh, first printed, first published mention of trick-or-treating. Um, Halloween. You know what Halloween means? Oh, there we go. Hello. We'll let the kids in here, give them candy. There's, they stopped by the studio. Hey, it's Halloween it's after Halloween. all. Uh, Halloween is short for Hallow's Eve or Hallow's Evening. Do you know what a Hallow is? Uh, I know what a Gallows is. Diff- very different. Any uh, idea what a hallow is? I have no clue then. Hallows is uh, saints. Oh, so like hallowed be thy name. There you go. From the from the Christmas carol. So yes, so um, it was a very, very religious holiday. All Hallows Eve, which is the evening before All Hallows Day or Hallowmas on November the 1st. And yeah, so there you go. And they decided to, um, th- th- there was a pagan holiday that was on October 31st. And so they put this day on the same day in order to try and convert pagan people. So that's where this one comes from. Uh, uh, Ireland is the birthplace of Halloween. So St. Patrick's Day and Halloween. You got them both. The two of the best, in my opinion. Uh, What else have we got here? 
Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to get over the fact that Alberta's where trick or treating started. Well, that's what? where it was first mentioned oh, publicly. Okay. So yeah. it may it started in Europe and it came over here and in the first place in Canada, the first place in North America that it was ever mentioned was in Alberta. Okay. Nevertheless, if you've never seen it before, that's got to be ridiculous to be like, why are you dressed up and why would I have candy? That would be an interesting question, especially. So we're going to get to the explanation of what trick or treating is in Ooh. just a second. Uh, Harry Houdini died on Halloween appropriately. I think he was kind of a he was a good escape artist, but he was a little spooky. Um, Scottish girls, I love this one. Scottish girls believe they could see images of their future husband if they hung wet sheets in front of the fire on Halloween. Others think that if they stared into a mirror on Halloween, they would see images of their future husband appear in the mirror. I've only seen myself. So far, no luck. Well, your future husband may still appear one of these days. Time will tell. Um, let us see here. Uh, 60, uh, no, I'll skip over that one. Uh, yes. Okay. Let's move on to the next page here. So most experts, now this is going back to the origins of Halloween started in Europe. Now we talked to Lorena McKinnett yesterday on the show yesterday or the day before. Anyway, yesterday. And one of her most famous songs is the Mummer's Dance. Well, do you know what mummer out of mummer is? No, not even close. Something to do with a mother? Uh, no, mumming is a form of dancing. So her oh. song is really the dancer's dance. <laughs> really. <laughs> and it's the singer's song? But this was, so this is the, the origin. Back in Europe when this first started out, uh, you would go door to door wearing a costume and you would either, you'd be mumming or guising, they called it. And it was choreographed dances and songs and plays in exchange for treats. So this was, it was, it was an organized thing and you had to have something prepared. In even earlier versions of trick-or-treating that we hear about, uh, men went door to door with boys right behind them begging for coins. And here's where it started because usually these were impoverished men who truly did need the money just to live. And so they would on that one day go around because remember All Hallows' Eve, it was a very religious day for the saints and you would go and you would get donations door to door. Kids then started to follow along and it caught on then that, oh, I can go door to door and I could get some stuff and that eventually morphed into candies and treats and other things. Those crafty kids. Those crafty kids, I'm telling you. So do you think that's where the costume part may have came in? Well, if you, according to, thank you for that great segue you had no idea you were offering. Oh no, I totally uh, knew. According to ancient Roman records, early, early, early Halloween, uh, they wore costumes of animal heads and skins. So they would go around wearing skulls from animals on top of their head and animal skins to represent whatever they were going to represent. That's I hardcore. Guess. That is a pretty hardcore way to do it. Yeah, it's... um, Not something you can get away with today. I don't know if you had to slaughter the animal to get the head or if you just like go around in the field in those days and look for an old skull or something. I suppose you could also ask like butchers or something. Uh, in a few American towns, Halloween was originally referred to as Cabbage Night. The far less popular Cabbage Night. Go door to door and you would receive a cabbage for people. No, it's um, it was uh, from a Scottish fortune telling game 
Girls used cabbage stumps to predict information about their future husbands. A lot of stuff in Halloween about finding future husbands. Uh, A couple more things here. In uh, some animal shelters in North America will not allow the adoption of black cats around Halloween because they are fearful that people are going to sacrifice them, which is totally unnecessary and seemingly a good move not to give them out anymore. I just had a call. Mummers are still, uh, like, the dance is still very popular in uh, Newfoundland. I'm sure. I'm sure. I did not know I have never mummed. (laughs) I I don't know if that's the proper term or, you know, tense for the verb, but I I am a non-mummer. Now, if you're a man, are you a dadder? Maybe. I don't know. Is it a mummer and a dadder? I think proper would be father. In World War II, trick-or-treating was halted in some places because of sugar rationing. That seems pretty legitimate. Seems legitimate. And because, again, who wants to go door-to-door and get a popcorn ball that someone made that has now probably got some sort of heroin in it or or poison or razor blade? I'm sorry. If you make popcorn balls, I'm sure you're a lovely person. I'm not talking even for you to eat popcorn balls. I'm talking if you make popcorn balls to give to neighborhood kids while trick-or-treating, I'm sure you're a lovely person. Just be aware of what the neighborhood kids are saying about you. <laughs> They're not, they are not speaking well of you. Oh, Mrs. Karpinski gave us the stupid popcorn balls again. Egger House. Yeah, you are you are clearly the weird lady or weird guy on the street if you're giving the kids the unwrapped popcorn balls that you drop into their bag. It's very well known. You are being judged on your candy. Oh, absolutely you're being judged. Anyone who thinks they're not being judged on their candy. And I go back to those molasses candies. You put a you put a popcorn ball, you put an apple you put a bag of popcorn, one of those little clear plastic bags of popcorn, or the molasses candies, or a handful of those corn things. The candy corn? Candy corn. I love candy corn. Ca- uh, candy corn is good, not when it's just a hand that the guy at the door <laughs> reached into a bucket and dumped them loose into your bag. That, that you're be- You are. You are absolutely being judged on your candy offerings. I remember people would give away cans of pop when I was trick-or-treating. That wasn't bad. That it, was a pretty good one. It was great, except for the fact that you had to lug around a can of pop in your bag, and it weighed down a ton. The The other thing is that if you are the reverse of the people we just talked about, the ones who are being judged, if you want to be the greatest people on the street so that all the neighborhood kids think you are the most wonderful human full-size candy bars full-size chocolate bars you are golden you can do anything those kids will run through a wall for you (laughs) every year they'll come back you give out full-size chocolate bars you've got that you win the neighborhood you immediately become the 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 house the house maybe the house the house um last uh two more Candy corn, we just talked about. Originally, it was called chicken feed. Ew. That was the name that they well, was I mean, given. it makes sense. It kind of looks... It looks like what you would feed the chickens. And the last thing is from the um, horror movie Halloween, which is one of the more famous horror movies of all time. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. And the uh, Do you know the mask that was worn? Do you know what the story behind the mask is? Sort of. Uh, if I remember correctly, the person... 
Yep. The person who, the, the, the costume person who went to find the mask that the killer was going to wear, went into a costume shop and found a William Shatner Captain Kirk mask from Star Trek, opened the eyes a little more, cut a little more in the eyes. But if you look, it is William Shatner's face that is doing the killing. It's great, isn't it? It really is something. The only way it could have been better is if they played William Shatner singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or something in his William Shatner-esque kind of way. The reason why Michael Myers doesn't talk, because it's really William Shatner. There you go. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.